Good morning, church. Um, my name is Joe Jayakumar, and that's my wife, Lydia, and my son, Moses. It's nice to be here, Dora Pope. I'm going to be doing the scripture reading from Mark chapter 3, starting from verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him, for he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those, who, those whom he, he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would he could send them away send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter and James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Move this here. I won't turn it off though, Luke. It is reflex at this point. I don't know why. What am I afraid of? Well, uh, it's so good to be with you all. My name's Cameron. Um, we are returning back to the gospel according to Mark. We took a little uh, eight-week break uh, for the Psalms, which I really, really enjoyed. I hope you did too. Uh, but that was uh, a break from what is really going to be kind of our main thing for, for certainly over a year. We'll see how long it goes, uh, which is the gospel according to Mark. And we'll take breaks. We'll continue to take breaks. We'll probably take a break in September as we kind of uh, revisit vision, really, after, after the strange season we've been in. We're looking forward to that. Uh, but overall, you can expect to be in the Gospel of Mark for a long time with some breaks. Um, you know, all Scripture, we believe, I hope you believe, is breathed out by God, but there's something especially powerful, I think, about spending extended time in the Gospels of Jesus, um, which are these, we, we talked about this uh, months ago when we, we introduced the book, but they're these ancient biographies fueled by eyewitness testimony. Um, they're written with artistic skill, and they are inspired and and guided by the Spirit of God uh, that are written intentionally to, to introduce us to, to this Jesus that these books, these ancient books claim is still alive. They, they, they quite seriously don't present him as a historical figure, but one who raised from the dead and is alive today sitting at the right hand of, of God the Father. Um, they're written to help us come to know him and, and, and more than just know him, to to come to know how to follow after him as his disciples. Um, spending an extended time in the Gospels, it gives us the chance to do a couple of things. One, um, I, I would say this maybe specifically to you if you're a Christian, which I assume probably most of you are, um, it, it gives us the chance to reflect slowly and deeply on Jesus, your Savior, your Messiah, 
your king, the one we believe in the words of Hebrews is the ra- er, uh, wait, what is this Hebrews? The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Even in the stories uh, that we might find to be boring. And today's, today's story, I, it, if you're going to rank like stories of the gospel in terms of like what's most boring to least boring, this is probably near the top. Like we, we got a recap of things we've kind of already looked at in Mark, and then we have a list of names. Uh, so even in this story, even in this story, we have the chance to slow down and see what God has for us in his wisdom in a story even as seemingly mundane as this. Um, so, so we want to do that. We want to not just blast through the Gospel of Mark, but we want to take it slowly and methodically and chew on each individual story as much as we can. And for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, I, I assume in this room there are some who, who aren't followers of Jesus. If, and if you're not, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, maybe you've been drugged here by a friend or, 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 a, or a boyfriend or girlfriend or something, a spouse. Uh, maybe you're just interested in Jesus, but kind of uncertain, like, ah, I want to know more. Um, wh- whatever your situation is, this gives you, looking at something like the Gospel of Mark for an extended amount of time, gives you a chance to, in a sense, come face to face with Jesus every week and make up your mind. Do you think this guy that, that so many people throughout the throughout couple millennia have said is, is not just a good moral teacher, but, but God made flesh, God with us, one who beat death and who reigns on high. Is he worth following or not? I say yes, but this is a chance for you to come and make that decision for yourself. Um, so if you want to, you know, if you missed the early, er, early uh, exploration through Mark. You can go back on our podcast, go back on YouTube, watch the video services or whatever. Um, it's all there. We did a kind of an extended intro the first week, and then we've uh, made it really through two and a half chapters of the Gospel of Mark so far. Um, and we pick up here. And I just want to recap what's been going on, because uh, the, the Gospels aren't just disconnected narratives kind of like thrown together. Oh, here's a grab bag of stories about Jesus. Each gospel writer is using skill to kind of tell the story of Jesus, to emphasize certain things, and uh, Mark has been doing that as well. So what's, what's been going on in Mark? What had been going on in Mark before we took the break? Well, the first two chapters were building the case from a bunch of different angles that Jesus is uniquely authoritative. Uh, they claim that he is revealed to be the Son of God, uh, even part of this mysterious trinity, Father, Son, that's Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they showed him to be the one uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, the faithful one who could withstand the desert temptation when all else failed, one who could call people to follow him and they would drop everything to come after him, one with the supernatural ability to heal the sick, one with authority over demons and unclean spirits, one with the ability to forgive sins on behalf of God, one with authority over fasting, that important ancient Israelite practice, and even he claimed uh, he was the Lord of the Sabbath day itself. And word was spreading. And though Jesus was silencing demons, demons would say, oh, you're the Son of God. And he would command them to be silent. Um, and, and when he would heal people, he would often say, hey, don't go tell anybody about this. He was trying in some sense to, to keep a low profile, which is very interesting. Um, but nonetheless, the crowds were just getting larger and larger and larger. And he was having to go like further away from the city centers uh, to, to sort of do the ministry that he needed to do. 
Um, so Mark also records, as all this is happening, he records that the religious leaders of his day, especially the Pharisees, they, they, we saw this story, this, this development through the beginning of Mark. First, they were kind of interested in this guy. Oh, who is this? Let's go see what he's doing. Then they were sort of confused by him, asking a bunch of questions. Then they were frustrated with him. And then finally, the very last passage we read, uh, we studied before we took a break, they had made the plot to kill him. Verse 3, 6 says, The Pharisees went out, and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them how to destroy him. So Jesus is bringing even natural enemies together in their hatred of him at this point because of these wild claims that he's making. If he's not right in what he says is going on, then he deserves to die. They think he's not right, therefore they're convinced he deserves to die. And the first few verses that Joe just read for us, thanks Joe, um, serve as kind of a summary and recap of what Jesus had been doing up to this point. So we're going to read it, but we're not going to hunker down uh, for, for the sermon on this part. But I think it's a helpful reminder of where we've been. So Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea and the great crowd followed. That's par for the course. And it was a crowd from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan from around Tyre and Sidon. And so this crowd, what, what they're telling us is it's not just Jews to whom the word is getting out. It's starting to be these people from these Gentile areas who are even hearing, like, whoa, what is this guy doing? We're hearing that amazing things are happening. And they're coming to check it out. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came. And, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, evidently these crowds are aggressive. And he's like afraid of getting crushed, getting boxed in, maybe even getting hurt by these crowds. So he says, get the boat ready. We might have to, we might have to make, a, make a jump for it. Um, and it says, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him. There's this desperation, sick, saying, May, Maybe this guy has the secret, has the ticket, has what I need to be made well. And they were right. And whenever the demons or the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And once again... He strictly ordered them not to make him known. So what we see here, just to recap, is that Jesus has angered the religious leaders. Remember that? The crowds. But while he's angered the religious leaders, the crowd, the common people, are at least interested, which is probably only further, further making the Pharisees mad, right? They think he's worthy of death, but they see the crowds going after this man. Makes him even more dangerous. And the crowds are pressing in as they had before, but the new element here is this geographical spread. It's people from all over, a diversity of locations, diversity of backgrounds um, of the people that are starting to come to him is noted here in this passage. And then finally, it's not just from the region of Galilee where he's been ministering so far exclusively, but beyond Judea, beyond Israel. And so there's lots of, of diversity coming after him. But in large part, this is a recap of, of kind of the story and the pattern of ministry that Jesus has been doing. So let's keep going. Here's where we're going to camp for today. Um, this moment, if you, if you know much about Jesus, you know that he traveled with a group of 12 closest disciples. There were big crowds that came after him. You could almost think of it as the, the, the curious kind of fringes of the crowd and then people who would travel with him, a, a, you know, a slightly smaller crowd who would like, oh, we're going to follow this guy and then getting like smaller and smaller groups until you've got this 12 that Jesus points here. We're going to see the origin of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles right here that kind of became this, this formal group of disciples. There, there's a larger group of disciples, but these 12 were given a specific purpose 
special training, special closeness to Jesus. So let's just look at the, at, at the calling of the twelve. First, we're just going to look at the task he gave them, and we'll just look at verses 13 and 14. So Jesus went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. So he picked them. He called them specifically. And those twelve came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he had also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We'll pause there. This section, actually, this whole section, starting in verse 13 through 19 that we're going to read, uh, it actually starts a whole section in the Gospel of Mark that's on community and family and discipleship that's going to go through probably like chapter 12, I'm mean, sorry, chapter 6, and, and it marks not only a, a discussion of what is, what is the purpose of the community of believers around Jesus, what does discipleship mean and look like, and what is even the nature of family, this new family that Jesus is building. Not only that, but it's a period of ministry training for these 12 that concludes with them getting sent out to preach in chapter 6, verse 6. Um, it's going to, frankly, even next week's passage, it, it starts these scandalous passages that, that kind of reorient the way we think about family and community in God's kingdom. Um, but this is the intro to that. And this is a moment, verses 13 through 15, of serious significance that would be easy to miss for a couple of reasons. One, we have the reference to the mountain. And uh, I, I don't know if, if, if your spidey sense is tingling here or not when you see the mountain, but, but throughout the Old Testament, the mountain was a significant place where God often gave special revelation about himself. When you see they went up on a mountain and God did something, this is like a monumental, huge moment. And you should pay attention. Most importantly, we think about when God gave his covenant with Israel through Moses. He called him up on Mount Sinai. He made this covenant. He gave him the Ten Commandments. He gave him the law. And he started like this major, like serious chapter of redemptive history up on the mountain. And so Jesus is having a mountaintop moment with his disciples here. So pay attention. What's about to happen is serious and significant. The other thing that we might miss is the significance of, of the twelve. Mark mentions the, the number 12 twice here. He repeats it. He's emphasis, he wants us to pay attention that there's something important going on with the choosing of 12. It's not an arbitrary number. And I know there's a lot of background. We'll, we'll, we'll get through it in just a sec. But just as a key part of the formation of Israel, the nation Israel's identity was these 12 sons of Jacob who were, who were the forefathers of these 12 tribes that were kind of the chief way that Israel was organized. So, Jesus pulls a 12, a 12 sons, if you will, a 12 tribes, if you will, 12 closest followers. And so there's something really interesting happening here. And this, this, ha this is really interesting. Jesus wasn't the first one to just pick 12 disciples and go do some stuff. There were different kind of religious leaders who would do that. And you know what, you know what they were saying when they pulled 12 disciples? They were saying, Israel, official leaders, priests, you've got it wrong. Like, you are not worthy of carrying on the mantle of Israel. So me and my 12 disciples, we are going to actually be the true, the faithful remnant. Uh, Craig Keener says there were a couple other groups who chose 12 out of the belief that they were the true, obedient remnant of Israel. So it's a slap in the face to Jerusalem. It's a slap in the face 
to the religious leaders. It's saying, you are not the faithful ones. We're actually going to be the faithful ones. This 12 is going to carry on the sincere legacy. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is doing the same thing. So this is kind of an act of judgment against the formal religious leaders. You think that's going to tick those guys off even more when they see, okay, great, he's called 12 people to himself now. Are you kidding me? You can just imagine their blood pressure boiling here. So this is serious. This isn't arbitrary. This is like loaded with history from the Old Testament. And it's a direct challenge to those that are opposing him. And then he tells, he tells them why he's calling them. Why he's calling them. He appointed them so that, here's the reason. First, so that they might be with them. Second, that he might send them out. Notice that Jesus wants them to be with him first before he wants them to do anything. Just, just note that. That is always the case. He wants them to come and be with him before he sends them out to do work. Grace and relationship always with Jesus. It always comes before the task is given. It always comes first. And, and more than that, uh, we, we mentioned they're not going to actually be sent out to do the, this preaching that he mentions until chapter 6. So, so it's not just like come and have intimacy and come and be with me first. It's, it's actually a seri- a, like a season of ministry training that he's inviting them into to travel with him. You can think of the next few chapters as kind of this on-the-job training for the disciples. They're going to get traveling with the king, traveling with the Messiah, learning what is the gospel, how do you preach, what do you do in these situations. It's, it's this intense kind of apprenticeship program that he's inviting them into. And sometimes in the Christian church, we, we, we can get like lopsided views of, I don't know, ministry training or whatever, I, I see two extremes. One is the extreme that says, unless you've got a PhD or a seminary degree or whatever, uh, you, 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 should not be, you should not presume to be a Christian leader of any sort. It's kind of this over-credentialed view. And I, I think we ought to re- reject it. None of these men, none of the twelve were, had religious formal training of any kind. None. And I think that's significant. They weren't masters of the Torah or whatever. They were just like blue-collar people, fishermen, largely. So I, I, I think this helps us to not have an over-credentialed view of like what ministry preparation ought to look like. But by the same token, you can err on the other side where it's sort of like, nobody needs any training, it's just kind of me and the Holy Spirit, and I don't need to, have, I don't need to work hard to actually learn and be with Jesus. And I think the very thing he's saying challenges that as well. He's going he's gonna to have them work with him for however long this is, these three chapters of Mark. But even then, you could think of his whole life of these 12 traveling with him as a period of training before he died, was raised, and ascended to the Father and actually empowered them to take the story forward. Three years traveling with Jesus, learning from him, asking questions. It's probably the best seminary program on the planet, right? So we just have to be careful don't fall into either of those ditches that everybody needs to have all these degrees or that some serious training and serious efforts actually be with Jesus and know him and, and for us know him in the scriptures before we presume to lead others. Sound fair? I think both of those points are made here. Um, so, so, ministry training. 
And I think, I think the point I would really want to emphasize here is that all, any health, any real health, because any of us can look healthy for a little while. Like as a pastor, I can look healthy for a little while. As, as a dad, I can. As a husband, I can. As a friend to any of you, I can look healthy for a little while. We, we, a lot of us can be good performers, good actors. We know how to say the right things. We know what, what parts of ourselves to withhold that make us look bad. We know how to kind of foreground the things that make us look good. Uh, but true and genuine health, it's not a performance. If it's going to last, it only comes in connection from being with Jesus. That is that's the only source of lasting health. Any health, any real health in life and ministry flows from that indispensable connection with Jesus himself. He called them so that he might, they might be with him first. And then that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So let's look at that. What's he sending him out to do? To preach? We can assume that it's the same message that Mark records Jesus. Mark boils down in the, at the end of chapter 1, kind of the essential message of Jesus. It was uh, to preach the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and to repent and to believe. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. He's here, he's bringing it, and the response is to trust him, to respond to him in faith. And this is going to get built out. There's going to be more nuance to this throughout the whole New Testament, but the core bottom line essential is the kingdom is at hand, and the only thing you can do if the kingdom of God is in your midst is to repent and to trust Him, to throw your faith at His feet and follow. That's where you find forgiveness from your sin. That's where you find a place in His eternal family, a seat at His eternal table, a place in the new heavens and the new earth the beautiful future that He promises. That's where you find freedom and the Holy Spirit's empowerment in your life. All these ideas are going to get fleshed out later in the Gospel. But that's a very, very nice, clean, one-sentence summary of it. I think He's teaching them. He's going to begin teaching them through this time. What, what's the message that we're preaching? Well, that's it. And then he's going to teach them, he's going to show them, he's going to give them the authority to cast out demons as well. He's going to give them supernatural power and authority to wage war against the forces of spiritual evil. And it's, again, it's not because they are uniquely, somehow these are the 12 people that are just, happen to be authoritative over demons. He's going to give them that authority. He's going to give them the ability to channel his authority. The point here is, what we're meant to see is that, what is this? Preach and have authority to cast out demons. These are the things that Jesus is doing throughout the Gospel of Mark. What Jesus is inviting them into is in partnership with him in his very ministry. He's inviting them into his work. And it's this foretaste of what he's going to do with the Great Commission. He's, when he says, I have all authority has been given to me, now therefore go and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to do my work through my spirit in you once I go up to the right hand of the Father. You are carrying the, the story forward. He's inviting them into his work. This is huge. Okay. There we go. That's what's going on. And the rest of this passage, just a list of names, tells us who these 12 were. And I start with a question. Like, if you were going to build a team for whatever... Preaching the gospel or whatever. Who would you go for? Who do you pick for your team? 
There was this hilarious meme I saw. Okay, I haven't seen the new Space Jam movie. A new Space Jam movie just came out. Space Jam came out like, the original one came out like right at that perfect age where it was just like crack for this little kid's brain. Like, I just so obsessed with Space Jam. Loved it, I loved basketball, I was a Michael Jordan fan. Looney Tunes, sure, we can get on board with Looney Tunes. Great, sounds like fun. Uh, loved the original Space Jam. Can't say I'm super excited about the new one, but who knows. Uh, anybody seen it? Anybody seen the new Space Jam? Oh, the Space Jam row back there. <laughs> They're all together. Interesting. All right. How was it? Eh. <laughs> that's, that's the vibe I was getting. That's the vibe I was getting. But I saw this, so I haven't seen the Space Jam 2, uh, but there was a part in the trailer, I remember this, where it showed like LeBron and Bugs Bunny like drawing a list of players they needed to recruit for their game. And I, it had like Superman and the Iron Giant and like all these like, whoa, yeah, if you could have Superman on your basketball team, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. But the memes I saw were like, here's LeBron recruiting Superman, but Michael Jordan could beat the Monstars with Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> I was like, I love that. Love that. I'm, no disrespect to LeBron. But Jordan could beat him with Newman from Seinfeld. And Bill Murray. Who are you picking for your team? If you're going to build a team that's actually going to carry the mission of God forward into the world, it's going to start this foundation for 2,000 years later, people still coming to know and love Jesus. Who's on your team? Who do you pick? I'm guessing it has, it would look nothing like the team that, jo that uh, Jordan, that Jesus, <laughs> that Jesus is putting together, or that Jordan is putting together. Who are these guys? Let's look at them. Simon Peter. Simon, to whom he gave the nickname Peter. Petros, which means rock in the Greek. Simon, nicknamed rock. The rock? I don't know. Simon. Peter, Petros, Rock. We know some about him. He was, he was a fisherman. We've already met him in the Gospel according to Mark. He's a fisherman. Just out there minding his business when Jesus appeared to him. But he was, he's listed first because he was the, the leader amongst the disciples. He was the one who kind of, kind of led. Uh, he was given kind of a special leadership role by Jesus. Um, super important. Important, important figure in the early church. We read about him throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee. Thanks, Sean. And John, the brother of James, uh, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. This is interesting. We don't know a whole lot about this James and John, who are the sons of apparently some prominent man named Zebedee. Uh, but they are mentioned alongside, alongside Peter as sort of the inner circle. So you've got the 12, but even within that 12, you've got this inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John, who seem to have an even more close and more intimate relationship with Jesus. These are the three that were invited into uh, the moment of the transfiguration when Jesus' appearance was changed and, and his glory was shining forward along with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John were the ones that he invited up there. They were the three that saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And perhaps most tellingly, these were the ones that Jesus invited to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was handed over to be killed. Peter, James, and John, come with me. So the, those three are listed first, perhaps because they're the ones with the most intimate, close connection. 
But this is really funny. What's the Sons of Thunder thing about? That's kind of weird. Well, we don't know exactly. Uh, you don't want to ever try to read too much into these little one-off statements in the Bible. But, but something that's really interesting, I, I hadn't noticed this until just now. I never looked into this too closely, but uh, a New Testament scholar Peter Williams pointed this out, and I thought it was awesome. In Luke 9, in Luke chapter 9, there's a story where James and John, these two guys, they ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. I wonder, I wonder if these guys were just like the, the hot-headed guys from amongst the twelve, and they had a habit of this. Like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and smite these guys? And Jesus is like, no, shut up. <laughs> it's not what we're doing. And so maybe, maybe that's the story. And they got, they got this nickname. He starts calling them the Sons of Thunder. He's like, yeah, those are the guys that are always trying to smite everybody. Sons of Thunder over here, James and John. Maybe. It's a, but whatever it is, it's a nickname that Jesus gives these guys. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? This personal little detail here. Maybe because these guys were really wildly hot-headed. Who knows? But there you go. Peter and then James and John, the Sons of Thunder. And then we have Andrew. This is Peter's brother, a fisherman as well. And I've always wondered, do you think Andrew felt a little bit slighted? I mean, seriously, we've got multiple groups of brothers amongst the twelve, but, but, but Peter gets to be kind of the, the lead disciple. He gets to be part of this inner core, and Andrew isn't, as far as we can tell. I wonder how he felt about that. You've got Philip. We, we, we know a little bit about him. He was from Bethsaida, the same town that Peter and Andrew were from. Maybe they grew up together. Perhaps they were all fishermen together. We've got Bartholomew, which is probably isn't his name. Uh, in the Greek, Bar is, is son. Bar Ptolemaeus is probably the son of Ptolemaeus or Ptolemy. Um, so this is probably a nickname which would sync up because you'll notice if you go read the list of disciples in the other Gospels, a couple of the names are slightly different. I think it's because there's nicknames and oh, here we're referring to him by, you know, he's the son of this guy or whatever. It's very interesting to look at that. We've got Matthew, which is probably Levi, the same guy that the tax collector we read earlier about in chapter 2. Um, remember, a tax collector is one who was working on behalf of the Roman Empire to basically extort his fellow Jews. So probably all the other disciples were suspicious of Matthew or Levi. Probably he, he was one of the ones that had the hardest time integrating into the group. Maybe he felt like a little bit of an outsider. Maybe they didn't trust him for a while. We don't know for sure but maybe. We've got Thomas. We don't know much about Thomas either, except he's called the twin elsewhere. So perhaps he, he had a twin brother or a twin sister. Thomas, the twin. We, we don't really know much else about him except for the story uh, recorded in John 20, Doubting Thomas. Do you think he was frustrated? I don't, I, I haven't even, I didn't, Maybe I should have looked into it uh, to see like, when he was expect, believed to have died. But I wonder if he saw th the Gospels at some stage as they were being written, and he's like, are you kidding me? The only story you guys put in here about me is me doubting Jesus' resurrection? That's all we know about him, doubting Thomas, one of the twelve. We've got James, the son of Alphaeus. Don't know much about him either. We've got Thaddeus which was perhaps a nickname 
uh, he, he, we believe this is the same guy that's called elsewhere Judas, the son of James. And then we've got Simon the Zealot. The Zealot is an interesting title. It's, it's likely, and maybe this is a nickname as well. Maybe they just were calling him. Yeah, there's Simon the Zealot doing his Zealot stuff. But he's <laughs> one from this emer- probably one from this emerging group of political radicals that were going to come on the stage kind of just after the ministry of Jesus. Who Maybe he was an early kind of version of this who wanted to restore the glory of Israel by violently overthrowing the Roman Empire. That, that was, a, that was the, the zealots, as they were known. They, they said, we're sick of this, Roman, this Rome stuff, this Roman oppression. We're going to take the sword, and we're going to get rid of them. So we, we, we think Simon was one of that group, or at least an early version of that group. And then very last, every time the disciples are mentioned, Judas is always last, for obvious reason. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. The one who handed Jesus over to be killed. That's the group. That's the group. I just want to make, I think, four observations, and then we'll be done, about this group that we have listed here. Four things. Number one, the apostles, the twelve apostles, twelve disciples' lives largely did not go down in greatness in human history but they had genuine greatness in the kingdom of God. Like, we don't know much about almost most of these guys. Nothing. The early church didn't make a big to-do about the the activities of them, what they were like, their personal stories. Uh, We have tradition that tells us how they died. But nonetheless, though we know almost nothing about them, their faithfulness in the hands of God is the reason those of us who are Christians are in fact Christians. They were faithful to the mission that Jesus gave them. And now, 2,000 years later, in Portland, Oregon, the other side of the globe, we're sitting in this room because of their faithfulness to preach the gospel. It is so, so often the case that the gospel goes forward by the faithful service of people who receive no glory, no celebration, and no reward in this life. Honestly, even think about people like my mom. She's one of the most godly women I know. She is one of the most sincere prayers I've known. And I just think, man, I am pretty certain she is going to have such a more glorious position in the kingdom than me and most of the people I know, but no one is celebrating her. I am right now. Mom, have you ever watched this? I love you. I'm grateful for you. I see your faithfulness. That is often the case. According to early church tradition, each of these disciples died, with the exception of Judas. His story is a little bit different, but each of them died faithfully continuing the gospel ministry that Jesus gave them. That's about all we know about them. But nonetheless, Jesus promised them that they would be raised from the dead and that they would be given special leadership roles even in the resurrection. Greatness does not work the same, thing in human his- the same way in human history as it does in Jesus' kingdom. They are great in his kingdom, though modest in human history. Number two, the 12 apostles, I hope you see this, they were an unimpressive, motley group of people. Nonetheless, they found immeasurable strength in Christ. 
They were not particularly well-educated, not even <laughs> that religious. They, were, they didn't really have great experience. They weren't particularly pious or talented. They were not insulated from mistakes or doubts or moments of deep unfaithfulness. In fact, Mark is going to highlight their failings a lot as we move forward. He's actually going to start putting them under the microscope as we move forward in Mark, and you're going to see their failings very clearly. In a sermon on this passage, one pastor said, the Lord uses ordinary, weak, ignorant, failing saints. Guess why? That's the only kind there are. There aren't any other options. I am not some other option. I am all those things. Ordinary, weak, ignorant, failing, and you are too. And whoever we think of as like Christian celebrities, they are too. We are all in this category. 1 Corinthians, Paul, Paul says it well. He, he puts the principle behind this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a powerful passage. There is intentionality behind the choosing of these no-name people. It's who God is, and that's how he works. In his grace, Jesus uses the unimpressive. Number three. The apostles probably experienced significant conflict with one another. Nonetheless, they found familial, intimate unity around Jesus. We've talked about this before, but I just want to highlight once again this, this Matthew and Levi dynamic. Matthew and Levi, that's one guy, and then Simon the Zealot, on the other hand. So we've got Matthew, the tax collector, a Jew, working on behalf of the Roman government to collect taxes from Jews, complicit with the unjust Roman overlords. And right in the same circle of 12, you've got Simon the Zealot, who passionately probably hated Roman occupation of Israel and desired a political revolution. He's the overthrow the government guy in their midst. What were those conversations like amongst the 12? What, do you, what kind of fights do you think broke out amongst these guys? What kind of distrust was there? And I'm not saying, I'm, I, I'm saying quite the opposite. I don't think Matthew remained a tax collector, and I don't think Simon remained a zealot in the same sense. I think the idea is that neither of them were going to be left in their ways. I assume they were each being challenged by Jesus regularly and changed by him to whatever, whatever, whatever the ideal is you know, for, for Jesus and how we view Rome. I think he was calling them both to that. It was not what either of them were thinking or used to or comfortable with. They were being changed by him over the course of their time together. But nonetheless, I just, I just want to point out, in the modern West, it is so easy to love the idea of diversity intellectually. We love it. We celebrate it. And we should. We should celebrate it. It's part of God's design. 
But I just want to be very clear that it is much more difficult to live it out faithfully in our actual communities around Jesus than we think it is. Because it means dying to yourself. It means having to examine your own assumptions. It means having to create space for someone who's, who's on a different place in their journey with Jesus than you are. Let the story of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector remind us that if we ever, ever start casting aspersions or suspicions to someone, you know, you get to know somebody here at Dwarf Hope Northeast, you're like, oh, that's what you think politically. And you start to go, oh man, maybe we've got some of the wrong kind of Christian here with us in community. Then we're probably doing something right. And that's not to say everyone's right about everything or, contra- you know, whatever. I'm just saying the way of Jesus is to invite the disparate together to central unity around him as we all grow closer and closer and closer to him. Amen? And it's hard. It's hard. But it's good. It's the design of the king that we might be made out of, not carbon copies of one another, but people who look and act and think differently one another, crucially around that central point, Jesus, that we're all in process of being conformed to. That's what we want to be about. That's what they were about. Last thing, number four. We see that God is still in the business of inviting his people to work alongside him, to have the joy and privilege of bringing his good news and the absolutely unique hope that we have into a dying world and into the relationships with our neighbors that we love. That has been his plan since the Garden of Eden when he created man and woman to be his, his heirs, his vice regents, his co-rulers underneath his authority. Say, hey, I'm giving you dominion. I want you to take care of this world that I've made, this good world that I've made. I want you to, to populate it, be fruitful and multiply, presumably build cities, you know, who knows what the world would have looked like if the fall had entered the picture, but it would have been beautiful and glorious. And we'll get to see it again in the new heavens and the new earth. Since Genesis 1, he's been in the, pro- he's been in the work of inviting his creation to actually share his ruling authority with him. That's a generous God that we have. And it's the same when we look at the Great Commission, where Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That's a reaffirmation that he hasn't, he hasn't yanked away <laughs> like the responsibility and the privilege of being his hands and feet in this world. That's what this is about. He's taking these lowly, non-special, non-particularly talented, ragtag group of people, and he's saying, you are going to be the ones that I, through whom I spread my kingdom. So, do you feel underqualified? You feel inadequate? Are you burdened with sin? Are you weak? Do you doubt your talent? Do you doubt Jesus? You're in good company. And that's the only company that there is. There's nobody that there's nobody not touched by those things. But by his grace and through his power, he can and will use you in the same way he used them. Not the exact same way, 
than the way he has, he has designed for you, for your role, with your gifts, for your placement in the world, for such a time as this, for the advancement of his kingdom. You believe that? Will you let him use you? All right. Let's pray.